In our series in the Gospel of John, we are covering, we are now in the point of the Passion. And uh, for the following weeks, this is going to be our theme. So this morning, we are looking at the topic or the subject, the title, Here is Your King, from John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Just by way of introduction, we concluded chapter 18 with one of the more bewildering aspects of the whole passion scene. When the crowds are offered the choice between Jesus and Barabbas the criminal, they, instead of choosing Jesus, they chose to release Barabbas. Now for a nation, for us it's perhaps a little bit bewildering. But we shouldn't be too judgmental. After all, one of the national heroes in Australia is Ned Kelly. Go figure that one out. So even though, even though there was manipulation by the leaders, in the end, there's really no explaining how the mob is able to bypass their brains while choosing their heroes. Vladimir Lenin would call them the useful idiots. That was a term that he used, the useful idiots. But here it goes much deeper than that. It's not actually an intellectual deficiency, but rather bloodthirsty criminal intent. And as I was reading again and again through this passage and as as we're looking at it this morning, this is is what transpires throughout the whole passion scene. Now during our series in John, you might have noticed that the Gospel of John is, is different to the other Gospels. The other Gospels are known as the Synoptic Gospels. That distinctiveness continues in his coverage of the trial, crucifixion and and the burial of Jesus. John records selected, he selects details differently to the other Gospels. He leaves out many of the incidents that the other Gospels include while supplying first-hand details, remember he was there, of the events that transpire. For example, at the end of the last chapter between Uh, in chapter 18, verse 38, between verse 38 and verse 39, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Herod, they had a bit of uh, animosity between Pilate and Herod, so this was an opportunity to extend the hand of friendship. So he sent Jesus to Herod, who was visiting at the time because of the feast. And obviously Herod couldn't make up his mind. He didn't resolve the whole matter. But nevertheless, he took the opportunity to meet Jesus and then sent Jesus back to Pilate. This is why John 19 is quite a chapter. It is quite a chapter on the passion of Christ. John takes us from Gabbatha, which is Pilate's judgment seat, to Golgotha, the hill at Calvary, and finally 
he walks us to the tomb in which Jesus was laid and from which he would rise. You cannot help, you cannot help that as you read this gospel story that to just, there is a darkness that overcomes even as you read this whole thing, even before the darkness of the afternoon sets in. There is a darkness that sets in in the heart of man. And yet, through it all, there is one standing. There is one standing, the light of the world, even as the world and the satanic forces try to snuff out the light of the world. Now, John's, John, if you haven't picked up already, John is, is a literary genius. And uh, as you read the Gospels, I hope that you've been able to pick up some of these, these things, the themes that run, that are threaded throughout the Gospel. And, and in this particular scene, the, the scene where Jesus is before Pilate, there is, a, in, in the Bible, Bible scholars call it a chiastic pattern. A chiastic pattern is something that is, uh, is shown in, in, in Genesis and in other parts of the Bible and it's certainly something that is, uh, that is used here. And, and so in this here, I will show you a picture in a minute, but it, it alternates between the agitated Jews on the outside and the royal calmness of King Jesus on the inside. So there you have all the crowds, and then contrast to that, you have the King of Kings totally calm. In between them, between the, the crowds, the angry crowds, and Jesus, who is totally under control, is Pilate vacillating, going back and forth, because he just simply cannot make a decision. So this is what the chiastic pattern looks like. So on the outside, uh, A, B, C, in, in chapters 18, 28 to 32, the Jews demand Jesus' death. So B, so outside, then you go inside in verses 33 to 38, Pilate questions Jesus about his kingship. Uh, C, we go back outside in verses 38 to 40, Pilate finds Jesus not guilty. D, which, is, which becomes the climax, D, in verses uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, the soldiers, they flog, they scourge Jesus. Then he goes back outside in verses 4 to 8. Pilate finds Jesus not guilty, which corresponds with Pilate finds Jesus not guilty in verses 38 to 40. And then B, uh, inside again in verses 9 to 11, Pilate talks with Jesus about power. And that corresponds with B, Pilate questioned Jesus about kingship. And then outside again in verses 12 to 16, the Jews obtain Jesus' death, which corresponds to the beginning of the whole thing, where the Jews demand Jesus' death. So you can see that the pattern, this is absolutely beautiful how he put it all this together. Um, now, Now let's go... Let's delve into the details of the passage as we look at verses 1 to 3 of the scourging, the flogging of Jesus. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him 
flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in his face. One thing we can say about Pilate is that he was never short of an idea. As he tries, he tries a new approach with the mob. What is that approach? Sympathy. Sympathy. He probably, he was thinking, if Jesus was scourged, perhaps the crowd could be appeased. After all, what sane person could look at a scourged prisoner bleeding and bloodied and all that and still want him crucified? That is the, that is the thinking, right? And so begins our Lord's physical torment. That's predicted in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. So I'm going to read from the King James Version, which we're probably most familiar with. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed again is repeated in, in Peter. Now, while the Bible doesn't go into the details, we know from history that the, the scourging inflicted horrible, terrible wounds. Jesus would have been tied to a post. His, his back was bare and his arms around the post so that his back was actually stretched and then the whip made of leather with bits of bone and metal tied to the end, he will be flogged again and again and again, inflicting the severest of damage. And as they flogged Jesus, skin on his back and the flesh behind it, up to the ribs, they will be tearing off. And now since Pilate had called him king of the Jews, the soldiers, they would also join in into the whole thing and had a bit of fun. They dressed him in purple robe. That wasn't enough. Then they pressed the crown of thorns upon his head as they mocked and beat him and slap him, probably knocking out his teeth one after another. And the Gospels tell us that they actually, as his face was getting bloodied and, and, and because of all the beating, um, they were trying to make him guess who was actually beating him up. Now, the crown of thorns, um, when we were in... Uh, in the Middle East and then in Africa, um, the, the acacia tree, there are many varieties of the acacia tree, but the ones that, that grow in, in the Middle East uh, and I think also in Africa, these are the, you, you can have a look at what the spines are like. They're about that big and they're pretty solid. Uh, you'll 
the tyres in your cars don't have a chance against these, these bikes. They're really, really, really tough. And they, they could be about an inch, two inches long. And so this is what the, the soldiers would have done. And just the whole process of putting this, this crown of thorns together would have been very, very delicate. And then, of course, they pressed it on the skull, on his head, on the head of Jesus. So you, even before we get to the cross, even before we get there, even before the crucifixion, the degrading, dehumanising torture already began. It's an understatement to say that hell and all the forces of hell were having a heyday. They were having a party at the expense of Jesus. So, as you read this, as you read this, uh, words actually cannot describe, and maybe that's one reason why, even in the Gospels, they didn't go into the details of what they did to Jesus. Words cannot describe what they did to him, but they also cannot describe his composure, his self-control, and how he just put up with it. Like no one else. Under extreme suffering. That is our Lord. Then in verses 4 to 5, we look at the man. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And so that was insight. They brought him out. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here, here is the man. Now let's recall that the first charge against Jesus was that of of treason or, or sedition. This is, we're talking about the civil charges. That they accused him of, making himself king. But Pilate, in his questioning, he found no evidence of treason, no evidence of guilt. So he, he, he tries to release him. And all in all, Pilate, on three separate occasions, actually says, in effect, this is what the text says, in effect he says, I find no fault in this man. And even though he admits it, he's standing there as judge, remember. And even though he admits it, this weak, vacillating governor has Jesus scourged anyway. I hope we never find ourselves before such, such a judge. What Jesus did. Now, I wonder if you ever, let's go back to the crown of thorns. I wonder if you ever thought of the significance of a crown of thorns. We, it's because the way that you read the Bible is important and there are patterns in the scriptures. We first read about thorns, where do we read it? In Genesis. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, remember, chapter 3 describes the fall of man. And and this is the curse. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce what? It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. So as a consequence of the fall, thorns and thistles would make mankind's effort to feed himself a lot harder. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to work really hard to feed yourself, to feed your family. And Jesus, in becoming the second man, the last Adam, he's taking those thorns, he's taking that curse and he's wearing it on his head as a crown. And then he nails it, he nails it to the cross. Can you see how it's coming together? And Pilate says, in Latin he would say, Ecce uomo, ecce uomo. Here is the man, verse 5. It carries the idea, look at this poor fellow. Hasn't he suffered enough? Just, come on guys, just let me release him, please. Look at him. We could say it was a noble effort, especially after he didn't find anything wrong with him. So if any crowd, if any crowd should have been moved by pity, it should have been this Jewish crowd, right? No, didn't happen. This teaches us, you and me, that to bring the lost sinner to salvation takes a lot more than sentiment and feelings. Apart from the centurion, remember the centurion who actually saw Christ and his suffering and said this was the Son of God? Nobody else repented. Nobody else. So if if no one else who saw Jesus suffer and die the way he did, if nobody else was moved to pity and compassion, What hope is there for us in the 21st century, separated by 2,000 years? We only read about his agonies here in the Bible. How on earth are people supposed to get converted? Well, this is why we have to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no one can be saved. We can get people emotional, we can get them crying, we can get them teary as they watch the Passion of the Christ and walk out of that cinema, maybe affected by a little little while and then move on with life as if nothing has happened. That is the human heart. We need God in everything. Now the silence, verses 6 to 9. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
And they insisted, we have a law and according to the law he must die. He called himself the son of God. Pilate heard this, he was afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. There's something about about this because Jesus had already spoken to Pilate before. So I don't know what else Pilate wanted to find out. Maybe some sorry story about his upbringing, how hard life was, you know, the whole victim thing. Yeah, I lost the rabbit when I was when I was three, got run over by a train. That type of thing. Why are you why are you questioning? You already know everything there is to know. You know how we play the victim card, right? Jesus could have. The victim card is actually one of my favourite cards. I hold it here. <laughs> here it is. Victim card. I, I, I can give them out for free, but I'm sure you have one of your own. The thing about this victim card is that it has credit in it. And uh, once it starts running out of credit, you know, that people get used to the same story, I change the story. I go back to something else that will make people feel sorry for me. And so it's always got credit. I just make the story worse or more, you know, more dramatic. poor, poor guy from Paraguay, you know, grew up in a poor family, you know, he's an ethnic, you know, you know those ethnics. His parents came from everywhere, then he came to Australia, he couldn't speak English, he was bullied at school, you know, he went to Canley Vale High School, I mean, who goes there? Then cover matter. That's even worse. I mean, it's, huh? Okay, so he does that, and then he became a pastor. Don't you feel sorry for him? You, you see, I got my sorry stories, and you have yours as well. You see it on TV. You see it in all these so-called uh, reality TV, don't you? They interview and then they cut and they edit. No, 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 try another story. And it goes on. Jesus kept quiet when Pilate asked him. He didn't go into the details. He kept his composure. He didn't blame anybody else. He didn't say, it's your fault. He didn't say, I'm sorry, did he? He stuck to his, to his guns. He stuck to what he was there to do. He already told Pilate the truth. What else do you want to know? He simply kept quiet. And this is what it says to us in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. 
He was fulfilling prophecy. The Lamb of God. Let's get back to the crowds. Well, as soon as they realised that the charge of treason wasn't, uh, it was slipping away, they resurrected the other charge, uh, the old chestnut, the, the religious one. It's a charge of blasphemy that they discuss in their own religious court and now they were trying it in this court. Blasphemy, the, the charge that he was making himself the son of God was, of course, a capital offence in Judaism. And, when, and, and suddenly, when, when Pilate heard this, he was, uh, he was afraid. Now, we know from history that the, the Romans were a, a superstitious lot. They, uh, they had a, a lot of things and, and they, that they believed. They believed in many gods, but they were certainly superstitious. You remember that his wife also had a dream and warned Pilate Warn her husband not to have anything to do with Jesus. Why? Because she had all these dreams that says no good's going to come of it. And maybe the claim that he was the son of God or however he thought of that, remember the son of the gods because they were all into this mythology and stuff, maybe that would bring bad luck to him if he did something to Jesus. So... We have treason and we have blasphemy. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. What happened there? In the Garden of Eden, it was treason. We rejected God's authority over us. Did God really say? That was the first time we disobeyed God. That was treason. We disobeyed the King of Kings, our Creator. Not only that, but there was also blasphemy because we believe Satan's lie that we could be God. The attraction to be like God was just too much. So in both of those counts, both of these things were the very things for which Jesus was accused and tried. He goes back to the garden. Verses 10 to 12, the power the power. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realise that I have the power to free or to to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore the one who handed you over to me is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on it appears that Pilate even tried even harder to free him but the Jews just got more and more agitated. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So Jesus, in his calmness, is not responding as Pilate wants. So Pilate then attempts to impress to impress Jesus with his power. And in quiet dignity, Jesus simply replies, you would have, Pilate, I just want you to understand something, you would actually would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
He means, of course, that God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God is the source of all authority. And anybody who exercises any kind of power does so with the permission of God himself, whether they recognise it or not. And our Lord, our Lord was reminding many Lord Pilate who was really in charge here. And the one who was really in charge here was standing right in front of him, bloodied and bruised. And Pilate didn't actually realise it. Now Christians need to remember this. We, we all need to remember this biblical view of life. When your boss mistreats you, when you are treated differently because of your faith, you will face a thousand and one circumstances which might actually appear to be injustice and cruelty. We need to remember that God is in charge of human life. Nothing escapes him. The one who has every hair in your head counted, he knows, he knows what you're going through. The world does not recognise this. It tries to denies God, it tries to forget anything about God. But the, the, we as Christians... We, we need to constantly recall this. We need to constantly remember that God is in charge. He is in charge and in control of life. This will help us when we are facing injustice, pain, heartache, even terminal illness, financial ruin. Yes, even death. Please, please remember this. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a, of a pause. It's an intermission from the message and we're going to watch a clip from a movie, The Pianist. Let me explain. The Pianist uh, is an Oscar-winning movie about a Jewish pianist, uh, Vladislav Spilman, who was caught up in the overthrow of Warsaw that was overrun by Nazi Germany in the Second World War. Now this, uh, this person, he witnessed his family and 300,000 others being taken in trains to death camps and the gas chambers. He was a Jew. But he escapes and he hides in a bombed out home. And he's hungry, fruit. he is starving, and as he tries to open a tin of fruit, the camera suddenly focuses on the, the presence of someone else in that room. It was a Nazi German officer. So let's, uh, I'll just dim the lights and let's watch this scene. Was machen Sie hier? Verstehen Sie mich? Ja. Arbeiten Sie etwa hier? Nein. Ich bin, ich war Pianist.
Pensi-mă. whole piece actually goes for about eight or nine minutes so I cut it in half 
The piece that he played was Chopin's ballad number one in G minor. Chopin was a famous Polish composer. He was a virtuoso who lived for about 39 years. He didn't live all that long in the 1800s. And it's this, this, this moving, sublime seven or eight minutes in which the horror, the, the ugliness, the inhumanity of war, in the midst of all of this, did you see the, the darkness in the room? In the midst of all that, somehow you're able to even rescue it through a piece of, of a magical piece of music. Beauty. There is another Jew here in this passage. Jesus. He too is standing in the midst of man's inhumanity. In the midst of brutality. Um, everything that they can throw at him. All the godliness, the hatred, the putridness of the human heart and yet he's still able to shine. Able to shine. What a saviour we have. So let's look at the king, verses 13 to 16, as we, as we come to, to the end of our, of our passage this morning. When, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judge's seat and, and, he, and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Behold the king, here is your king. Isn't it extraordinary that Pilate should say more than once, behold the king? And, and, and John, John is saying to you and me, do you understand, do you actually get it, that this pagan king, this pagan governor, sorry, actually recognised Jesus as king. He actually got it right. He was the king. He is the king of glory. Now, of course, in a real way, the, the Jews have trapped Pilate. He has... rejected Jesus, unfortunately. And even when he declared king, he didn't probably even know what he was saying. But he has rejected the incarnation of truth when he said, what is truth? Truth is standing in front of him. He is left responding to the demands and the pressures of the world. He is responding to the mob. He doesn't like the alternatives which are offered to him. It's Jesus or the opponents. Jesus or the opponents. He's been forced to decide. 
the same with us. It's, it's, you, you have to decide each and every day. Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be Satan? Is it going to be the flesh or is it going to be the spirit? Who will you yield to? Someone said there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And each of us faces the same challenge as Pilate. Perhaps we try and delay the crisis. We don't want to decide, make a decision. But as we all know, we will not be able to do so forever. We have to decide for Christ. We have to. The alternatives is too horrendous to contemplate. And even though the Jews have trapped Pilate, he now springs on them a trap of his own. When they once more reject Jesus as their king and call for his crucifixion, Pilate replies, shall I crucify your king, he says in verse 15. And they should have responded, they should have responded, we have no king but God. That's what they should have said. But in order to force Pilate's hand, they start pushing on his loyalty to Caesar. So the chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. And like Pilate, we are forced to choose which king we're going to serve. And here, the spiritual leaders of the nation, the spiritual leaders of a nation are denying the very faith that they are claiming to uphold by rejecting Jesus. In fact, God alone was Israel's king. Remember the the first psalm that we read? The psalmist asked, Who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. And yet here, the religious leaders themselves are saying, We have no king but Caesar. Interesting, isn't it? In conclusion... He is rejected. The people didn't accept Jesus. They rejected their king. This is what John has been telling us from the beginning in the opening verses. He came into the world and the world did not recognise him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. There is a blindness of the world and the rejection of the Jews results in these acts at Calvary. He is rejected. He is also denied. Peter couldn't stand up for Jesus. He actually denied him. All of us at one time or another have acted similarly. We want to stand up for Jesus. We want to call ourselves Christians and show our loyalty to him. But when push comes to shove, we realise it's going to cost us a little bit too much. And then the rooster crows. It's Jesus calling us back, isn't it? That's his mercy, reminding us of our commitment. He is delivered. He is rejected. He is denied. He is delivered. Pilate couldn't stand up to Jesus. He actually handed him over to be crucified. Because of his conflicting loyalties, he could not decide. It's frightening to think how many 
how many times we can slip into the same weakness as Pilate. So from a human standpoint, we could say that the trial of Jesus was the, the greatest crime and tragedy in all of human history. But from the divine viewpoint, it was the fulfilment of prophecy, the accomplishment of the will of God. However, this does not absolve your responsibility and my responsibility for the crime. In fact, Peter, as he stood up in Pentecost, this is what he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. There's two aspects. God's plan and your involvement. Finally, for centuries the Jews had been blamed and indeed even persecuted by Christians for killing Jesus. Yet the Bible is very clear that both Jew and Gentile, Jews and Gentiles were involved in putting Jesus on the cross. You and me, we all collaborated in the passion of Jesus. The good news, the good news is that both Jew and Gentile are graciously offered a chance, are graciously offered salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. To reject Jesus, to reject him as King, as Lord, is to reject life itself, not just here, but life eternal. I hope and pray that all of us here have made a decision for Christ despite the the challenges and difficulties that you and I face every day. Let's not give in to the slippery slope of the world but cling to Jesus because he is holding us in his hands. Amen.